the San Francisco Experience podcast, brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 18, Episode 19. What the Fusion Energy Breakthrough Means. Talking with Lee Bernstein, professor at UC Berkeley and Nuclear Data Group Leader at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. In December, a major breakthrough to recreate nuclear fusion was announced by scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Physicists have pursued the technology for decades as it promises a potential source of near-limitless clean energy. It's the process that powers the sun and the stars. Joining us from his office in Berkeley, California, is Lee Bernstein. Hi, Lee, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thank you very much for having me. Lee, would you take a few moments to share your biography with us? Certainly. So, as you said, I'm I'm a faculty member at UC Berkeley Department of Nuclear Engineering, and I also run the Nuclear Data Group at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, which uh, is one of our nation's national labs that's dedicated to doing scientific research in the public interest. So before I came to Berkeley, I spent 22 years as a staff scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. So that's also in the Bay Area, a bit further away from Berkeley. And at Livermore, we have the National Ignition Facility, which is the world's most energetic laser. NIF, as we call it, as an acronym, was a facility that's, or is a facility that's designed to recreate the high temperature and pressure conditions that you find in certain aspects and certain parts of nuclear explosives. And that's the kind of environment that can initiate fusion. Kind of to go further back chronologically, before going to Livermore, I got my PhD at Rutgers University in New Jersey in nuclear physics, um, not nuclear engineering, even though I'm a professor of that now. And I got my master's degree from the University of Maryland College Park and a bachelor's before that from, from Rutgers as well. Very impressive background, Lee. Lee, what is nuclear fusion? That's a great question. What is nuclear fusion? So fusion, just like the, the name suggests from common use of language, is bringing things together. Okay, what you do is you take two nuclei, and I think I should take a moment here just to be clear about what I mean when I say a nucleus. A nucleus is a um, system that's comprised of protons and neutrons that's at the core of all atoms. And so in fusion, we bring together two nuclei and combine them, and that process liberates energy. If the two nuclei in particular come to a more stable configuration, in their in, in the in the fused system now when we talk about fusion at the national ignition facility we're speaking very specifically about deuteron plus triton and what that means is a nucleus that contains one proton and one neutron that's a deuteron and a nucleus that contains one proton and two neutrons that's a triton you combine them and they form a nucleus with five particles, obviously, two plus three is five. One of those particles is a helium-4 nucleus, the same that you'd find in a party balloon, and that's two protons and two neutrons, and then you have one extra neutron that comes out with a great deal of energy. 
And it's the energy and that's in the form of, of motion. And the motion of those two uh, constituents, the helium and the neutron, are what's being liberated in fusion. So what are the next steps to transform this groundbreaking experiment in a, into a sustainable technology which is going to power our homes, our cars, change our way of life? Okay, great. So I'm going to answer that, but I want to just step back to the fusion part up for a bit because I want to make it clear a distinction about fusion that the, the fusion that just took place at the National Ignition Facility versus what it's often given an analogy to, which is what happens in a star like mm -hmm. our sun. Okay, that's a fusion reaction as well, and it has the same property that you're combining two nuclei and releasing energy. But the reaction that takes place in our sun and the reaction that takes place in larger stars is actually a very different fusion reaction. It's much less probable, and therefore it's much slower. And we're all very happy about that. It means that we get to enjoy the sun burning for another couple of billion years. Mm -hmm. The higher probability and higher energy release that they get in the fusion reaction that's going on at the National Ignition Facility is literally about 10,000 billion billion times more likely to occur. Mm. So hence the, the reaction rate is much faster and the energy generation rate is much, much faster. So that's the type of fusion that I'm going to be talking about in answer to your, your question about prospects for this as an energy source going forward. So since that reaction is so much faster mm -hmm. and, and releases so much more energy per unit time, it actually doesn't look so much like a star, but it looks a great deal like, frankly, an explosion. Okay, And the, the actual event occurs over a very short period of time. So, for example, in the, the shot that occurred at the National Ignition Facility recently, this took place over a few tens of trillionths of a second, not even billionths. Folks in, in software are used to talking about nanoseconds for electronics. This is a thousand times faster. Hmm. Okay. So it's basically a small explosion that goes off and produces a burst of energy. Okay. And if now in the event in the, in the, in its use in a thermonuclear weapon, of course, we don't do a small amount. There's hmm. actually a great deal of material that's present. And that material again, releases its energy very quickly. And this is what we colloquially refer to as an H-bomb, right, for hydrogen, because de the, the deuteron and the triton that I mentioned are, are types of hydrogen. So what would be involved if we want to take an H-bomb, which does release a lot of energy, but it's not very useful to power our homes and cars? How do we take that and make that usable? So the way, first of all, obviously, the amount of energy released has to be scaled down, mm -hmm. okay? Right, you know, a, a bomb goes off and releases all of that energy just too rapidly for us to absorb it and use it to do energy production. You know, and our traditional method of doing that is to absorb it as heat, use that heat to boil water, use the, the steam that's created from that to drive a turbine, etc. This wouldn't really work with a, with a bomb. The other problem is that nuclear weapons, thermonuclear weapons, hydrogen bombs, need atomic bombs to get them started mm -hmm. okay you need another nuclear explosion and that nuclear explosion can create a great deal of radioactive long-lived radioactive debris mm -hmm. now your goal is to have a weapon that may be just part of even the 
design vision for it. Okay. But again, if you want to do this for energy generation, it's not very effective. So what happened at the National Ignition Facility was that we used, instead of using a, an atomic weapon to start the fusion reaction, mm -hmm. we use lasers. Okay. These lasers deposited a great deal of energy in a short period of time onto a container that the fuel sat inside of. That container became extremely hot. It generated very energetic X-rays, and those X-rays acted to implode effectively a capsule that contained the deuterium and tritium. So the first big thing that's happened to on the road to commercialization of fusion power is that we got rid of the atomic weapon. Mm. Oh, well, that's very, a, very that, important. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Now, the other thing that happened is that the thermonuclear energy that we produced, the fusion energy that we produced, was produced in a much smaller dollop. Mm -hmm. Okay. In fact, the implosion that occurred had roughly the energies of equivalent that you'd get from eating two large jelly donuts, okay, which is much better than leaving a crater. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, this, strange to say this, but the, the way that we are envisioning the future, which may include fusion power, involves scaling down the amount of fusion power that we produce at a go, mm -hmm. right? So... That the, the National Ignition Facility just managed to accomplish that, okay? And to be fair, I would argue, as would a lot of my colleagues in physics, that this wasn't the first time that they did it. The first time occurred back in August of 2021, mm -hmm. where they produced, again, a capsule. The energy that they put into that capsule, which contained the, the fuel, was greatly exceeded by the energy that came out. They published those results in physical review letters, which is a very well-esteemed journal within the physics community. I was very honored when they chose to include me on the, the long author list of folks who worked on this. It's mm -hmm. been a titanic effort going on over decades. And then they did it a second time. And then most recently, they did it a third time. And that third time, the energy that came out exceeded the laser energy. And that's what they've defined as being ignition. Mm -hmm. But in that implosion... They only used about 4% of the fuel. So the first thing that has to happen is we have to increase that percentage, ideally getting as close as possible to 100%. Mm -hmm. and, and that is conceivable. You could see how that would happen. Another important thing that has to happen if you're going to make this into usable commercial fusion energy is that you need to produce the isotopes that are used to fuel fusion at the same time as you're producing the energy, right? Mm -hmm. If not, we will go through our supply of this fuel. Now, I've said that there's two constituents to the fuel. One of them is the deuteron, and the other one is a triton, okay? The deuteron, I'm pleased to say, is commonly naturally occurring. It is, um, it's about 0.04% of all hydrogen. So the ocean has got plenty of deuterium or, or deuterons in it to fuel fusion power going on into the Distant future, no mm -hmm. problems. The triton is a little bit trickier. The triton, or if you put the three electrons around it so that you form an atom, it's called tritium. Mm -hmm. Tritium has about a 12-year half-life. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean is that whatever tritium we have right now, half of it is gone in about 12 and a third years. 
and then another half of it is gone after another 12 and a third years, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so we would quickly burn through all of the tritium that we have right now. In fact, some of the estimates that I've heard suggest that it would take only about three months if we were having large-scale nuclear fusion energy production. And we'd have all the tritium gone, and that would be the end. Mm-hmm. So obviously, we can't let that happen. So what we need to do is use some of the products from fusion, and in particular here, it's the, the neutron that comes out, to create more tritium. Okay, People refer to that as tritium breeding. Mm-hmm. And um, what we mean is another nuclear reaction. So that, that, that neutron comes out, and you need to take its energy and use it, of course, like we were talking about before, to boil water or what have you, to create heat. Mm-hmm. But we also need to take that that neutron and use it to create tritium. So there are several good ways to do that. The method that I think is most popular right now is to use a type of salt which um, contains the element lithium. And it's got fluorine, lithium, and beryllium, and there's a, an acronym for it that looks like FLIB. Okay, And so you would have FLIB, and the, the FLIB salt, a lot of people don't think of it this way, but salt is actually at the right temperature and pressure conditions is a wonderful liquid. And so you could have a molten salt sitting around the fission, the, the, sorry, the fusion chamber, mm-hmm. absorbing the neutrons, becoming hot. That hot molten salt could then boil water and generate energy. But more importantly, the lithium in that salt, in the FLIB salt, can also produce tritium. And so what would happen is that over the course of the plant running, you would be constantly separating out the tritium from the rest of the flybe for use in the fabrication of additional fuel pellets. Hmm. Okay. Now, flybe isn't the only way to do this, the lithium reaction. There are other ones as well. One that you can use in addition to lithium is boron, mm-hmm. which is the same ingredient that's in borax soap. Right. You can use boron to create um, tritium as well. And so that's an option. And so there might be a boron compound of some sort, perhaps again, a molten salt that could be used for these purposes. So now what we're seeing is a picture of pellet going off, mm-hmm. generating energy and generating neutrons. The neutrons create tritons. Mm-hmm. The tritons are separated out and combined with deuterium from ocean water to give you your fusion power. That's the, the picture that would emerge. Well, Lee, you've given a very clear step-by-step explanation of the process, and I think that was something that was missing in those early reports of ignition last month in December. So thank you for that, and I'm sure our listeners are grateful for that that very detailed explanation. But please proceed. Oh, thank you. I, I felt it was important just that they understand how, how this, how this was, was working. And now we're on to the part that... It's what we I would describe as engineering. Right. <laughs> the science part has been accomplished at a certain level. And like I said, it's been done three times now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we need to increase the efficiency of the burn. We have some ideas about how to do that. Mm-hmm. And some of those ideas are based on experience and knowledge that we built up over the last several decades in a program called Science-Based Stockpile Stewardship, which was run by the Department of Energy to ensure that we have a safe and reliable nuclear stockpile without testing. Mm -hmm. And and the NIF, the National Ignition Facility, is one of the cornerstone components of that science-based stockpile stewardship program. So we have then 
a picture of a series of capsules that are coming out with tritium that in the long term has been being produced by the fusion power plant as well as the energy. Mm -hmm. And now we have to run this thing fast enough to be producing energy at a rate that's useful for us, but not so fast that it's blowing things up and destroying it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's a question of finding just the right balance between these two extremes. Mm -hmm. If you use capsules that look like what was just shot at the National Ignition Facility, you sort of need a minimum of about 10 of these per second being shot through the system. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the lasers that are driving the implosion would need to fire 10 times per second. So currently, when we do a high-yield laser shot at the MIF, um, it, you can do about one a day. And one of the big concerns is that the optics that are involved, especially the what we call the final optics, the ones that carry the full power of the laser at the end, mm-hmm. they heat up and they can get damaged by the fusion reaction that's going on a few meters away from them. Okay, So in order to sort of move this to a commercially practicable situation, we're going to need to understand those optics better. And we're going to need to be able to generate the laser light more efficiently. So let me start with that latter piece, the generating the laser light. Mm-hmm. Good news there. Since the NIF was designed, we've already dramatically improved our abilities to generate laser light, mm-hmm. high-intensity laser light. NIF is a glass laser, okay? Kind of f- familiar to people of my particular age from uh, something they might have seen in a, in a high school or college uh, physics laboratory. Okay. The new ones are all solid state. Mm-hmm. And those devices are both more efficient and cheaper to make. So already, if we were to build the next laser that would be a successor to NIF, it would be much smaller, much more efficient, and much less costly in inflation-adjusted dollars. So mm-hmm. that's the good news. Okay, The damage... That's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Right now, probably the single greatest issue that we need to think about when we think about nuclear fusion is how to harness the energy from that neutron mm-hmm. and minimize the damage that it's doing to the power plant and in the process of doing that. Mm-hmm. Okay, So you can have your blanket of salt that's absorbing the energy, okay, but you have to have holes in the blanket to let the laser light in. Mm-hmm. And all approaches in fusion, you need to have some hole in your, your salt layer. And so some of those neutrons will come out, and they will cause damage. And that damage requires experimentation in order to design a system that's robust with respect to it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the fusion community for years has been aware of this, and they've been pushing for experimental facilities that would allow us to study that neutron-induced damage better. And they get a benefit here. Some of the people who've developed fission power plants, which are perfectly viable sources of energy as well, I should point out, mm-hmm. um, and quite practical, and they're here right now, they produce neutrons as well. Their neutrons are less damaging, but we've developed techniques to deal with that damage as well. So that's the most important thing. I do want to do a small diversion here, Jim, just to mention the other type of fusion. Mm -hmm. that's out there, and the one that's probably most popular. And this is very different from what happened at the National Ignition Facility. It's um, something called magnetic confinement fusion, or MCF. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
very different. Instead of a mini explosion, an MCF system creates a, a high-energy density system still containing deuterium and tritium mm-hmm. and creates conditions which allow a fusion burn to go on, and it looks very different from a weapon explosion. It's more of a continuous slow burn. Okay, And the key part there, and the way that lasers were key at the NIF, mm-hmm. for magnetic confinement fusion, the key is magnets, Okay, very powerful magnets. And all of the current designs call for those magnets to be something called type 2 superconducting magnets using rare earths and barium copper and oxygen. Okay. I think that for people who are real engineers, MCF has always been much more appealing. It doesn't look like a bomb, mm-hmm. and you can scale it. Unfortunately, the, the adage is that we're always 20 years from break-even with MCF. So it's, it's very hard to create those right conditions and not have the energy bleed out before fusion occurs. So we haven't yet really succeeded in doing that. Um, but if we did, it would look very similar to the NIF. You would need to be breeding tritium at a continuous rate, you would need to have, um, now it would have to be magnets that could withstand this really intense neutron field. And we have, unfortunately, very little data about that. Um, so we would have to do experiments. So sort of addressing all the needs for this, we'll, we'll have to do experiments there with the magnets or for um, laser-driven ICF, we would have to do it with laser optics. We have to make sure we understand how to make tritium. And... Um, and then the whole thing has to run at the right rate mm-hmm. to be both usable and yet safe. So that those are sort of the uh, from a bird's eye view. That's the the major challenges that I that I see um, between commercialization and where we are right now. So, Lee, if if I can just pose a question here, it sure. looks as though the science, uh, of course, with that announcement in December, the yes. it sounds as though we understand the science. We've achieved ignition. The next step is engineering, and you've given us two examples of engineering approaches, one of which involves the lasers, which is how the the experiment in December was conducted. The That's other right. the other involves magnets. Is that what they call a tokamak? Is that uh... yes, it, it, it's pronounced tokamak. tokamak. That's exactly right, Jim. They basically there's a lot of donuts in this yes. podcast. Um, <laughs> it looks like a donut. Okay. <laughs> It's got a hollow interior, but basically think about it as being otherwise a donut shape. That's correct. That's a tokamak. Okay. Um, now let's come back to let's come back to the the laser approach. Yes. Now the engineering to co- to commercialize that approach. How far along are we in the development of that engineering? to get it to a commercial state because you had mentioned secretary of energy granholm through some through some dates out there that uh that that caused you to wince talk to me about the timeline to create that energy so that we can enjoy that fusion energy in our homes and in our lifestyles sure um yes i i think that so first of all there has been some research done on turning in the inertial confinement fusion approach, the laser approach, into energy. Mm-hmm. There was a program for some time at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which was called Laser-Induced Fusion Energy, or LIFE. Uh, scientists and engineers love a good acronym. Um, and so LIFE was trying to view that and 
answer some of those engineering questions. Mm-hmm. Now, a, a key component, I, I, I actually was never involved in all of the energy out from just fusion, would be to use the lasers to generate the energy, to generate the fusion, and then use those neutrons to generate fission, mm-hmm. okay, which is another form of nuclear energy. And these are called hybrid systems. And engineers were naturally drawn towards this for two reasons. Okay, One of them is that we all know that fission energy works. Okay, mm-hmm. Now, there's a loaded term that comes in whenever you look at fusion. And the term is clean. Okay, mm-hmm. So what does clean energy mean? Well, right now, something that we're all very aware of is that the energy... Um, production mechanism shouldn't create gobs of greenhouse gases, mm-hmm. right? And in particular, we've become aware that even CO2 fits into that picture. Mm-hmm. So both fusion and fission fit that bill. They do not generate greenhouse gases, okay? The other thing is that, um, of course, people get nervous around fission mm-hmm. because a small um, amount of the product that comes out is indeed a long-lived radioactive product, right? okay? It is a very small quantity. We're talking only a few percent of the um, of the radioactive waste that that comes out is long lived. Mm-hmm. And now the strength of a hybrid system becomes clear because the neutron that's generated in fusion is actually capable of burning some of those most troublesome products mm-hmm. up. So if you can combine these two things, mm-hmm. fusion and fission, you have a way of kind of bootstrapping the whole process and speeding it up considerably is that the amount, the fission would be dependent on the fusion. So there's no way that this system could melt down. For example, mm-hmm. you just turn off the lasers and it's done. It can't, it won't run anymore. Uh-huh. So it's inherently safe as well. Mm-hmm. Now the, the folks who did worked on life, they did that for years at Livermore and a lot of them are still around I don't know the current status of that research that's going on, but I, my, my general impression is that it's slowed down rather a great deal because we didn't achieve fusion right away at the NIF. Mm-hmm. But I would hope that folks are reexamining that, mm-hmm. either in the public sector at national laboratories and universities or in the private sector, that people are looking at this and saying, how can we combine our existing technologies together with what we know about fusion and the ample information we know about fission to create a nice closed loop of energy generation that minimizes um, waste deposition issues. Mm-hmm. So um, that's it's somewhat long winded, but as is often the case with nuclear technologies, there are many moving parts yes. that you want to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Now um, let me let me pose a question. Of course, this mm-hmm. was a uh, this was a, a great accomplishment for Lawrence Livermore, for uh, Lawrence Berkeley. You were involved in the process. Tell me about what other countries are working on, Russia, Japan, the EU. What uh, what is the state state of play with those countries in terms of developing a viable fusion technology? Great question. Okay, so first of all, can I call out some particular names for praise? Yes, of course. Okay. Um, my own particular role and the role of Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory to date in this has been quite modest. We did do some work on NIF diagnostics, um, and I helped support that as well. The folks who really deserve the credit here are these amazing um, 
designer and experimental teams at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Mm-hmm. Andrea Kreicher, who is the lead designer, Alex Zilstra, who designed the experimental um, setup for this. And it's, it's important to note that this was a science experiment. Mm-hmm. And so it's not enough to say, oh, look, it worked. You need to measure a lot of details. And you're measuring these details in a very short period of time. Some scientists have likened the NIF as being uh, like trying to figure out what's in a trash can by throwing a hand grenade into it. (laughs) Um, So really, that's impressive. And then when you look at inertial fusion energy, you have to include the name Tammy Ma. She is the head of the inertial fusion energy program at Livermore. Mm -hmm. And Livermore has done this great job of breeding these fantastically talented individuals. I I will give one bit of credit to Berkeley. Um, Andrea Kreicher was a graduate of our department Mm. and uh, and she was a postdoc with me. So I was very I'm very pleased that I think the biggest contribution that I've made to fusion was working with Andrea. (laughs) But okay. I've given all the right credit to those folks. They deserve it. Well, okay. thank you. That well, well deserved. Now tell me about tell me about our competition out there, the EU, okay. Russia, Japan. At the moment I'd like to think of them more as being collaboration. Mm-hmm. The big effort on magnetic confinement fusion is a device called um ITER, ETER, mm-hmm. and it's conductors, but normal superconductors. It's a different sort of device and a different approach. But that's where most of the community has been focusing its energies, mm-hmm. if you, you'll pardon the pun. <laughs> the, the Brits were involved in this as well. They have a facility called JET, which is another that the, the T there is for Taurus, which looks a great deal like a tokamak. Mm-hmm. Um, same sort of, uh, of a donut-like shape. So JET has been performing experiments for quite a while and given a great deal of information. But going back to the laser ICF, mm-hmm. okay, really, Livermore and the United States is the unmitigated ruler of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they really, this is, we are the best at doing this. Mm-hmm. There is another facility that was being prepared when I was at Livermore in the south of France called Laser Megajoule, which was going to actually be even more energetic than the NIF. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know the current, LMJ is what it was called. So um, I don't know the current status of LMJ, but I will state, you know, Livermore, while the NIF was built as part of the science-based off stewardship program, and there are classified activities that go on there, NIF is mostly an open facility. So Jim, you could write a proposal to have a NIF shot and have a chance of getting mm-hmm. it, okay? Not so with H- highly, LMJ. Highly unlikely with my science background, <laughs> but you, nevertheless, good to know. In case you feel like it's time for a career change, you can do this. There is a science campaign there. Um, LMJ is not like that. Mm -hmm. LMJ is truly a weapons facility, and unless it's changed its um, way of doing business. So I don't really think that that they're in the commercial energy um, competition line. Um, In terms of laser ICF, I'm unfamiliar with any other system that can be competitive, we do have other laser facilities in America that do complementary research, but at much lower total energy. Mm-hmm. There's particularly there's a laboratory in Rochester that does this work. It's called the Laboratory for Laser Energetics (LLE). There's also one in Japan mm-hmm. that is pursuing a very different apo- approach to fusion energy. The Japanese are extremely reticent about connections to weapons, as yes. one could imagine, mm-hmm. and um, so. That one is in Osaka, and it's called the Institute for um, Laser Energetics, I believe, ILE. And I've had the pleasure of being out there. That approach is a little different. They don't try to use the lasers just to compress, but they only compress it a little bit, and then they try to ignite it through another process called fast fusion. 
So um, Aile Osaka is definitely in the business. For MCF, I'd say it's, it's Eater, which is an international effort, and the U.S. is one of the partners for that. Um, but in terms of laser ICF, it's NIF. Mm-hmm. That's the facility, um, and it's now working really well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think there isn't a lot otherwise in the way of competition in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but one last thing I should mention is that they do have it. Is, there's a lot of collaboration. Okay, a lot of those international partners have made contributions either intellectually or in terms of hardware two experiments running at the NIF. Mm-hmm. And our, um, the, uh, the Brits have been heavily involved in this for quite some time, and they viewed this as being not so much a, a tool for energy production, but as a way also to aid them in their goal to have a safe and reliable stockpile in the absence of testing. So they contribute as well. Mm-hmm. And we've had contributions from the Japanese. I mentioned that before. And um, I believe a few other countries. There are some other laser labs that are being built in la- in uh, Europe right now as part of something called the Extreme Light Infrastructure mm. or EY. But those things again are not really focused on fusion energy. They're f- focused on using lasers for other scientific exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, does that answer your question, Jim? Yes, it does. And then, and then most importantly, the time frame to get this, to get the engineering that they're working on now, to get that to a commercially viable phase where it can power, where my, as PG&E is running the wires into my house, I, I can know that that power <clears throat> has been generated through fusion. When can we expect that? Not to put you on the spot. Well, you can put me on the spot, but I'm not going to be able to jump off of it. Um, <laughs> I think it's decades, okay? Not a single one and probably not two. Now, going beyond that really is a question of this wonderful thing that we do in America, which is we mix engineering and science. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's really beautiful. Uh, There's not a lot of precedent, incidentally, I'd say, in human history for this. The very idea that we have national laboratories, right, that we fund at a a relative pittance of funding. But we do this um, because... They provide us opportunities to do certain aspects of research that don't look commercially viable right up front, right? Because companies, of course, have to make money for their stockholders. So, but on the other hand, we have the private sector, which harnesses lots of people's ambitions and creative energy to take something out of the sandbox and move it forward. Um, you know, well, you're, you're in San Francisco, Jim, and you know that the, the Silicon Valley has been a marvelous engine for Mm -hmm. um, development and change. But it's written on the back of a lot of science effort that comes from these national laboratories and universities. It's a a wonderful collaboration. It really does work quite well. Mm -hmm. I'm doing something right now with a company for cancer research, developing radiopharmaceuticals. And it's great. Research done at a national laboratory, a team from a university, and then a private company coming along and supporting the venture. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be key to making that time scale reasonable. Mm -hmm. I think that we, I do agree with Secretary Granholm that we need to involve industry. Yes. I think it's important, not just because of the resources that they bring, i.e. money, Mm -hmm. but also because of the type of drive they bring being complementary to what scientists would do on their own at a national laboratory. You need a bit of tension 
where one team is saying, how do we get this thing moving forward quickly? And another mm-hmm. one is saying, wait, don't do something stupid up front. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that if we do it right, and I have some degree of confidence that we will, we see a, evidence after evidence of this, right? I mean, look at these wonderful examples of, of these probes that we've sent to outer planets. There's so many different pieces that have to work on this. And it's done, again, with public-private partnership. I think if we do this right, we could move this forward much more quickly than if we pursue either a pure science path or a pure industry path. Mm. This is the, so I've managed to dance around answering your question exactly. <laughs> I just said multiple decades. Yes. Two is an absolute minimum, and it could be longer. But, but Jim, on this note, let me just say one more thing. We need to solve our energy production problems. Yes. Energy is essential for the quality of, of life, not just for us in America, but for the world in general. Mm-hmm. And so you could say, oh my gosh, 20, 30 years, I'm going to be retired or gone even. But it, it's more important than that. For the future of our planet and the next generation, we need to come up with these solutions. And now we've just added one more possibility mm-hmm. into the picture, thanks to the wonderful work that was done at Livermore. Very encouraging. Well, Lee, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts for our listeners? Well, I, maybe I jumped the gun by that last bit. I would say that while the results that we've seen from the National Ignition Facility are super exciting, we need to be thinking globally about other ways to address our energy needs okay i think that this is critical we are fortunate in this country to have this fleet of national laboratories that are run by not the national science foundation but the department of energy Mm -hmm. which was a recognition of the fact that it is so important for us to you know any modern society to do this fusion could be a part of that picture fission is a part of that picture right now. Yes. So are renewables, okay? I think we need to um, harness all of these things to be able to create a future for the planet and for civilization that uh, is something that lives up to all of our dreams and expectations. And Lee, how can our listeners follow the great work that you're doing there at UC Berkeley and that you're also doing at the Lawrence Berkeley National Labs? Well, great. Thank you, Jim. Our, we, our group has a website. It is Nuclear Data. That's all one word together. Nuclear, N-U-C-L-E-A-R, data, dot Berkeley, dot E-D-U. And I will remind people, <laughs> Berkeley has three E's. That's uh, often de- deceives people. Um, I'm afraid I don't have a social media presence. I have much too uh, much in terms of interesting stuff going on in my life to be able to keep up on it. So nothing on Twitter or anything like that. But nucleardata.berkeley.edu, and you can learn about the group um, that, that I lead and all the wonderful students and researchers that I have in it. You heard that directly from our guest, Lee, Professor Lee Bernstein. That's repeated, please, Lee. Sure. It's nucleardata, all one word, dot berkeley.edu. Very good. Nuclear data dot berkeley dot edu and berkeley is spelled b-e-r-k-e-l-e-y dot edu <laughs> thank you jim <laughs> okay. lee i really appreciate your coming on the show 
and walking us through, at a very granular level, the process of fusion, what happened at Lawrence Livermore, the kind of engineering that will take that science project to commercialization, and when that might happen. Thank you very much for this very elucidating podcast today. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Jim, and I really enjoy your work. Thanks for doing it as well. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 364, as the San Francisco Experience podcast embarks on its third year. You can listen to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, or or wherever you listen to your podcast. We are global in scope with listeners in 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco Experience podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco.